You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Strength to Heal, brought to you by the United States Army Medical Department, AMED. Your host is trauma surgeon Dr. John Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is a former Army colonel who served as director of the U.S. Army Trauma Training Center in Miami, Florida, and as chair of the ACS Army Committee on Trauma. Putting bones together and healing patients' lives. Our guest is Colonel and Dr. Jim Fickey, Chief of Orthopedic Surgery at Brook Army Medical Center in Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and Orthopedic Consultant to the United States Army Surgeon General. Welcome, Dr. Fickey. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I would imagine that given the current war, there are a fair number of lessons in the care of the injured with orthopedic trauma. What are some of those lessons that you can share with us? Considering that the burden of orthopedic disease, the orthopedic injuries that we've seen, we have a pretty conservative estimate that there's been over 10,000 injuries to extremities as a result of the current conflicts. And so the lessons that we've really learned are a number of new ones, which would have to do with the techniques of debridement of blast injuries, as well as techniques of application of external fixation. The injuries that we see, about 25% of, of all extremity injuries that we've seen coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan have been open fractures. And when these folks are injured in such a way, they need a way to transport the patients to get them safely back to the United States where definitive surgery can be done. So one of the significant lessons, significant advances that we've had has been that the field application of a damage control temporary transport external fixation device is not only limb-saving, but really seems to be reducing the, the rate of further injury as well as infections and kind of long-term sequelae of the injury. One of the other lessons that we've learned that I'd like to just talk about has been the advent or the widespread deployment of a field tourniquet. Uh, we've found in laboratory research that a tourniquet can be safely applied by a minimally trained combat soldier and with every soldier that goes to Iraq or Afghanistan carrying one, we see a much higher survival rate and is a life-saving type of device that really met great success over there. So it sounds like hemorrhage from extremity trauma is probably the number one source of preventable death, and the early application of a tourniquet can save lives. Oh, that's, a, that's well put. Well, we hear quite a bit about the injuries that are occurring in our fighting soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Are these new types of injuries that we're seeing, are these injuries that are beyond what has happened in previous wars? What we have is historical records, and some of the historical records would reflect that these injuries are of similar severity. We have a different way of capturing and cataloging these injuries than we had in, say, Vietnam or, or even earlier in Korea or World War II. But when we look back at some of the literature that's in, in published literature from those times, we see very severe injuries of those as well. I think what we see now is a higher volume of these because we are seeing patients survive the advent of body armor, as I said, the life-saving tourniquet, new equipment that, that allows a patient to have a better chance of survival from the battlefield to the operating room, improves their chances of survival, and therefore we see a higher volume. 
But I think the severe injuries, the very significant catastrophic blast injuries, are really no different than what we're seeing in previous conflicts, just a higher volume. And now they can survive to get care. Yes. And you had mentioned this transport external fixator. And for some of our listeners, it might help to visualize this a little better. How is that different from a traditional fixator? In its application, prior to this conflict, external fixation was considered unsafe, unstable, and was not really looked at widely as a method for transport. So what we saw from our historical records from Vietnam and earlier were that a patient underwent a debridement of the wounds and then were splinted where that wound was covered and then they may or may not have subsequent debridements until they got back to the continental United States. So this is different in that once the surgeon does a debridement in the field, in the operating room in a combat support hospital or a forward surgical team, that they then apply an external fixation device. Same techniques as we would do back here in the States, but this device is not intended to be a rigid, stable construct. It's just to hold the limb out to length to afford wound access for wound care. Uh, Some of the other advances such as negative pressure wound therapy can be applied over or around the external fixator. This device then allows later insertion of an intermedullary nail or plating or some other type of definitive fixation once they're back here. It's a temporizing measure. It's commonly known in both general surgery and orthopedic surgery as a damage control surgery. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Strength to Heal, brought to you by the United States Army on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. John Armstrong, and our guest is Colonel and Dr. Jim Fickey. We are discussing lessons in orthopedic trauma care from Army medicine. And as we hear about this transport external fixator, it sounds like it is a simplified if you will, set of tinker toys or or even an erector set that bridges a fracture, provides some stability, and allows casualties to get back to other levels of care. Uh, That's exactly right, John. It's an invasive procedure. We'll place pins into the bones on either side of of a fracture. And mind you, the nature of these injuries, these are highly comminuted, complex fracture patterns, not just a simple crack that you may see on the athletic field but multiple loose bone fragments. So these all then can be spanned. You've got two or three pins on, on each side of the fracture site, and sometimes even over across a joint so that they've stabilized and, if you will, internally splinted the limb. Much less pain, much more stable, much better tissue access for dressing changes and that sort of thing. And you had mentioned debridement. Uh, help our listeners understand just what we're talking about in managing some of these complex extremity wounds with debridement. This technique is not new. This is any time that there's a blast injury, which are the most common, or a gunshot wound, there's an extensive amount of damage and destruction to the soft tissues, to the skin, to the muscle, nerves and tendons, and all of this is contaminated. Once it's open to the air, once it's been contaminated with the soil or the compounds of the blast, it's very highly at risk for infection. The concept of debridement or wound excision requires that all tissue that is not 
viable is removed. And that oftentimes is a difficult concept to grasp for an elective surgeon, someone that's used to routine arthroscopy or routine knee replacements. And so this really has to be taught. This is actually a decent lead into something I would like to mention about some of the education pieces. We find that residents and, and even mature staff who are in that type of elective practice need refresher on this concept of debridement. It's, uh, it's not something that is natural response to be cutting out tissue. You want to save tissue when possible, but we really find that complete excision of all non-viable tissue is the best way to reduce and eliminate infections after these blast injuries. Well, it seems that these blast mechanisms are associated with a lot of high energy. And I guess the temptation would be to look at a wound and think, well, what you see is what you get. What I'm hearing you say is that it's much more than that. Absolutely. You really need to explore all the, the tissue planes, make sure that the contamination doesn't extend far beyond what the visible extent of that local wound is. And so it requires a wide exposure and, a, and an aggressive debridement. We certainly like to encourage maintaining some of the vital structures, such as nerves and, and vessels, bone when it has soft tissue attachment, but it becomes a judgment call. And it's also something that occurs over stages. We will do an initial debridement and then two, three days later, do a, a repeat debridement, and we'll continue that until the, the wound looks absolutely clean. So it's a process. It's not a, a one-shot deal. That's correct. And you speak from firsthand experience, uh, as I understand it. You are a veteran of our current conflict in Iraq. What did you find in your leadership role there was important to help everyone get prepared for these types of, of injuries? I was deployed for one year in Iraq. During that time, I was the chief of professional services or the deputy commander for clinical services. I was responsible for the surgeons, all the physicians that were, were there. And, and before we even talk about extremity injuries, we've got to keep the patients alive. One of the most beneficial aspects of that was qualification on every physician, including our psychiatrist, in advanced trauma life support skills, a formal course, and then and then practice on that. And a, a number of labs that we had down here at Fort Sam Houston, we also sent a team down to the Army Trauma Training Center where 20 of our individuals were, were able to practice firsthand on the skills to work as a team and to develop a practice of resuscitation. Once we got them back to the operating room with resuscitation, every surgeon had an opportunity to, to scrub or to work on de- techniques of debridement with me, as well as with the general surgeons that were deployed with us. It's a team, and really every one of them learned some of these techniques. I hear teamwork resonate throughout what you've been sharing with us. We've been talking with Colonel and Dr. Jim Fickey, leader in orthopedic surgery, who's been sharing with us lessons in orthopedic trauma care from Army Medicine. Dr. Fickey, thank you very much for being our guest. Well, it's my pleasure, Dr. Armstrong, and I appreciate the support that you all have given to the military. Thank you for listening to The Strength to Heal on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. The Strength to Heal is brought to you by the United States Army Medical Department, AMED. For more information on this or any other program and to access our on-demand features, please visit us at ReachMD.com. For more information regarding Army Medicine, 
Go to healthcare.goarmy.com slash heal to learn more. When we talked to Captain Ernesto Cardenas, an OBGYN in the Army Medical Corps, we asked him why he chose the Army for his practice. His answer surprised us. He didn't talk about being given an established practice or not having to worry about insurance, employees, or rent. He didn't say that he enjoyed having the most advanced technology at his disposal or being a member of one of the world's largest healthcare systems. Captain Cardenas talked about giving back to the country that had given him so much. He went on to tell us about practicing in a humanitarian mission to his native Colombia and the sense of pride he felt in providing free care to people in need there. A medical career in the U.S. Army or Army Reserve is rewarding on many levels, personal and professional. You can reward your career, your country, and your life for a lifetime. Exercise your strength to heal. Visit healthcare.goarmy.com heal to learn more. That's healthcare.goarmy.com heal.